How should banking institutions brace themselves for stronger cybersecurity in 2012? What investments will they make in new fraud detection technologies? And what emerging threats should they be focused on? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Alistair Faulkner of ThreatMetrics, a cloud-based provider of cybersecurity solutions for online transactions. Alistair, you note five key areas to which institutions should pay close attention in 2012. E-commerce, enterprise security, malware's multi-channel threat, the updated online authentication guidance from the FFIEC, and cyber warfare. When it comes to payments fraud, and we look at payments fraud evolving over the course of the next year, what steps should institutions be taking to ensure they adequately address some of the emerging risks? Thanks, Tracy. That's a really good question. So what we're finding for e-commerce merchants and financial institutions that provide um, e-commerce and checkout tools for their uh, merchant customers is that fraud is migrating from the front door, which is typical credit card transactions, uh, to the back door, which is um, registered customer accounts. And the reason why they're doing this is because merchants and, and banks have put in better protections around device identification to differentiate between this is a valid customer or a fraudster sitting in Romania with a stolen uh, credit card credential. So instead, what, what we're seeing and our customers are seeing um, is that fraudsters are now using malware to uh, snoop credentials or uh, through phishing attacks or, or some other technique. Um, there, there are plenty of, of ways to do this. Are taking over accounts uh, to take advantage of a valid credit card. And because the uh, accounts are assumed to be trusted, you're not dealing with the great unwashed internet, uh, they don't have the same uh, protections in place. And, and it becomes very difficult to differentiate between a returning good customer using a valid credit card uh, and a fraudster who has hacked those accounts. And what about specific challenges, Alistair, that you see in the mobile channel, whether it's mobile banking or mobile payments? Where are banks missing the boat from a security perspective? Well, I, I think it's related um, to, to the e-commerce problem is that fraud and cybercrime uh, moves across channels and they essentially they exploit uh, the differences in tools, the technologies and the processes that are involved. So in mobile, uh, whether it's for a bank um, or other financial institution, you'll find that it could be implemented um, under a different team. Perhaps they've outsourced uh, some of the programming and development to a third party. Um, and, and that's all well and good, but it just means that uh, to have an effective uh, cybercrime prevention strategy, you need to be able to have tools in place where you can screen all your transactions in a consistent way, whether it be from mobile or uh, from a desktop or a PC. And, and let's not forget that mobile itself has some distinct challenges when it comes to screening fraud and cybercrime. Uh, mobile is, by definition, uh, a transaction can come from a, a variety of different places. Um, so it may not be unusual to see a customer uh, log in from multiple different sites uh, at, at a given time. And also from a mobile channel, um, depending on the type of mobile, for example, um, the iOS, Apple iPhone, is a lot more locked down. And so it's, it can be harder for financial institutions to differentiate that mobile um, from a hacker that is trying to spoof um, a, a legitimate customer. And then what about merchant security, Alistair? What investments do you see merchants making to enhance POS, transactional, and payment security? So 
obviously merchants are struggling uh, from widespread breaches. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of overhead in terms of compliance that's in place now. And then in the U.S., um, obviously chip and pin is something that's coming down the line, um, and that is you know a positive thing where we also have uh, new things like um, Google Wallet and and other um, other initiatives by credit cards and, and companies like PayPal to introduce um, NFC or you know tap and go type uh, transactions. So those are going to introduce new customer expectations, new um, technology um, systems integration requirements, which can be a headache. And not to forget that uh, what we've seen in other markets, for example, Europe, is when they implemented things like chip and pin at the point of sale. That fraud, there was a, an increase in the amount of fraud that migrated to the online channel. So, you know, uh, merchants and banks alike uh, really need to um, be prepared for a future where cybercrime, and that is crime through the online channel, um, increases uh, as opposed to decreases, um, just because uh, security at the point of sale might have improved. Now, I'd like to go back to a point that you made earlier, and that was to talk about cross-channel fraud and the need for institutions to fight fraud across multiple channels. When we look at the updated authentication guidelines from the FFIAC for enhanced online security, Alistair, how do you see stronger investments in device identification and secure browsing solutions having an impact there? Oh, that's a that's a great question <clears throat> because what what um, all financial institutions now who uh, look after uh, customers' deposits are finding is they're now being forced to implement multiple best of breed solutions, and so they might have to look at one place to um, get technology device identification technology which helps them identify. Uh, good customers or new customers uh, as opposed to forces with, with phishing credentials. And they also need to integrate a secure browsing technology which helps them, once they have identified a good customer, to make sure that that computer isn't infected with a bot. And to make matters more difficult from a financial institution's perspective, if a customer's machine is infected with a compromise, uh, with, with, with a Trojan, um, the attack doesn't necessarily have to come through the online channel. In fact, it can be quite the opposite. So, for example, what you're seeing from the latest uh, Trojans, Zeus Trojans that, that are out there, is that when the customer is at the page, um, the device might check out and it looks consistent and it, it, it is identified by that bank that this is a legitimate returning customer's um, uh, device, that even before the customer uh, enters their username and password, that Trojan injects a script which says, for additional security, we'd like you to give us your social security number or um, you name your um, challenge question that, uh, that you might get asked if you called up the help desk to try and change the telephone number that your one-time password is sent to. Or it could, be, um, it could even be um, credit card details or some other information which could be later used to attack another site. So now you've got financial institutions who not only have to protect themselves, but they also have to protect themselves from the weakest link in their industry because they're going to be targeted if other banks um, are lax in terms of implementing uh, security on their end, you know, specifically things like device identification and secure browsing technology, then they're going to be the target of, of forces um, uh, that have exploited that weakest link in the industry. So having an integrated solution that we talked about cross-channel that looks not only at to identify a device, detect whether it has malware installed on that device, detect and classify 
whether that malware, that crimeware, is actually trying to exploit that transaction, um, but also be able to screen those uh, transactions from across the mobile channel as well. So uh, from a financial institution, uh, they're, they're really starting to look for um, their integrators to in, in, implement these types of technologies along with out-of-band authentication in order to meet guidance. And then I wanted to ask also about fingerprinting for remote devices. I think that ties in with what we're talking about here and addressing fraud from multiple angles and multiple channels. Do you see financial institutions investing in this type of technology or are they simply missing the mark? Well, you know, there is the initial um, implementation. So back in 2005, the original FFIC guidance said username and password were not sufficient. And so financial institutions back then um, implemented uh, weaker forms of device identification. Um, and, you know, it was successful for a while. Uh, this is remote device fingerprinting. Um, the, the issue at hand was that when you take shortcuts or just when the technology um, gets older and banks don't upgrade, is that forces have specifically targeted the weaknesses in those initial um, implementations, so more weaker forms of device identification. So now the challenge is for, for the FFIC, uh, or for banks that want to be compliant, is that they're now being asked to implement what's called complex device identification. And the difference between complex device identification and simple device identification is that it's more resilient to attacks, so it makes it harder for a fraudster to spoof who you are just by copying a cookie or um, just changing aspects of configuration uh, on their device. And then let's go back to talk about enterprise-level security. How are fraud and security departments expected to work more collaboratively in the future? Well, you know, it, it, to this time, unfortunately, um, fraud and security have been birds of a feather that don't flock together. Um, however, when you're looking at cybercrime, you realize that um, a compromise in your customer base um, could very easily be a compromise or lead to a compromise of of your network or a compromised employee um, also then translates um, to a breach which then shows itself up at your front door uh, when those credit, uh, stolen credentials are used against you or, or your industry. So um, what we see is a couple of trends in the market is that initially uh, banks and FI, you know, banks in particular are deploying secure browsing technology that lets them know that uh, this remote customer, maybe it's a commercial banking customer, is connecting uh, with a computer that has a known compromised, uh, that's known to be compromised, has a Trojan on that machine. That Trojan is attempting to sniff um, you know, sensitive data that could be used to uh, either commit a fraudulent transaction or to do a transaction out of band over the phone. And what the security department is realizing, the chief security officer, is that for that bank, is that they don't have the same level of protection for their own employees. Um, they have no insight into which employees are connecting to the VPN uh, with compromised computers. So um, unfortunately, um, but it's obviously good for the long term, is that the spread of malware, it's such a, a pandemic problem now, is that it's going to force um, enterprises to have a single view over both their customers' computers and also their employees' computers um, in a consistent, integrated system. Um, otherwise, it's just going to miss the mark. And I might be shifting gears here a bit, but obviously this focuses on online security generally, and that's social networking and some of the risks that we see social networking sites posing. In what areas are we not engaged, Alistair, from a security standpoint? Well, I think um, I, I think for most 
uh, chief security officers that I talk to and, and fraud is that they're, they're highly aware that Facebook is a problem. Uh, the issue, well, a problem in terms of um, fantastic for enabling us to share things uh, instantaneously with with our friends and family. Um, the issue being that um, it also creates the same opportunity for fraudsters. Once they compromise your account, they now have, on average, another 130 um, that they can leverage that trust to. So, from a from a corporate standpoint, um, you know these friends or employees, you have you, you're not sure who they're connecting to. Um, you know, in the case of RSA, you know you have advanced persistent threats where social engineering is a key a key part of the strategy to compromise your corporate assets. So, you know, the question is, you know, how do how do we how do we effectively deal with that? You know, one way is by having better intelligence on a computer. So you're not going to be able to stop employees. Well, it's hard, even if you could stop employees from accessing Facebook and those types of social networks at work. Um, once they go home, uh, they're still open to the same kind of attack vectors. So really, it behooves employers to have better device security, better device intelligence um, about known trojans and malware on those devices, so they can make sure when they do connect to sensitive systems that there is a, a risk-based um, relationship, a risk-based authentication system in place to protect them just in case they have been infected. And finally, before we close, Alistair, I did want to ask about your thoughts related to global cybercrime. Will 2012 be the year the U.S. goes to war over cybercrime? And how are more state-sponsored attacks expected to change how global governments address cybercrime? Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, you bring that question up. I mean, obviously, we're seeing a lot of escalations. If you just see what's happening um, over in Israel at the moment, you have... Um, stock exchanges being uh, targeted and taken down by ri rival hacking groups, you know, which are you know, obviously state state sponsored. Um, you know, and the, the question is, you know, um, around what is an active war? You already have, um, for example, in Australia and the U.S. now there is a, a, a truce that says, uh, an alliance that says that a cyber war um, uh, is sufficient enough to put that alliance into place. So this is serious business now. You know, we have um, geopolitics being um, affected by um, hacker groups, which are, you know, if you look at terrorist cells, are the most mo you know, hackers are the most mobile um, virtual terrorist cell that you can have. And some would argue that um, some of the attacks by um, Lyles and, and Anonymous, you know, are acts of terrorism, depending on which side of the fence, you know, you want to cast... Um, uh, cast that judgment. So I don't want to be alarmist, but um, you, you, depending on which circles you move in, you, people um, will tell you that there is already a Cold War in place. Um, how that may escalate, you know, is anyone's guess. But I can tell you, if um, you know the Nasdaq goes offline for a couple of days or a week because of a cyber attack, that I'm sure that will be the start of something uh, very big that people haven't fully uh, looked at the consequences for. Alistair, I want to thank you again for your thoughts today. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, great talking to you and your audience. Again, we've just heard from Alistair Faulkner of Threat Metrics. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.